All right, now we're going to spend some time looking at the Bible. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up your Bible. We're in a series in the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, we've been studying this question that's framed the entire series, what to do when the world falls apart. By all normal measures of what is our normal secure life, this world is going nuts. Our world is falling apart, and we need to remember what it means to cling to Jesus by faith as spiritual exiles. And that brings us to this week. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 9. We've been in these weird dreams and visions. This week, it's actually going to be a little more normal, less weird visions. He is going to talk to an angel, Gabriel, and get some revelation from Gabriel, but there's less of the weird kind of images of beasts and monsters this week. But don't worry, we'll, we'll come back to that next week, okay? Um, but this week, Daniel chapter 9 is, is a real major pivot point in this book. And we're calling the main idea of the section of Daniel chapter 9 today, Long for Home. As we look at this idea of being an exile, we'll find Daniel longing to return home to Jerusalem, longing to see his home, the place where God's glory and grace is proclaimed in the temple, longing to see that restored and rebuilt. And so as I was looking at this text and looking at Daniel's longing for home, I'm reminded of our New Testament hope of being at home in heaven, right? We're told in Philippians that we have a true home in heaven and we are awaiting a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are spiritual exiles. This is not our true home. And this is a really important time for us to remember this, right? We're in the middle of a very divisive election and no matter which side uh, of the two or three or four or five sides that you're on, in this divisive time in our country, chances are in the next few days, you're gonna feel like things are getting worse, right? You're gonna feel like things are getting worse. Even if your side wins, it's probably gonna seem like things are getting worse. And we need to remember, this is not our true home. We care for Babylon, we invest in Babylon, but all the visions of Daniel have shown us that all of the great kingdoms of mankind, including the United States of America, which we love because it's our kingdom, but ultimately those give way to the kingdom of God. We're hoping that doesn't happen, you know, right away. We, we, we want to see this place prosper and do well because it's our home, but our real home is heaven. That's our real hope. So remember that in the days to come. Things are going to get crazier before they get better, but trust that, that Jesus is king. Another way that I think a lot of you have experienced this longing for home is through deployment. One of the hardest things that I went through when I was a new pastor here 15 years ago was some of my closest friends, I would take them to the gym where they would gather together you know, to leave on the buses and on the planes to go on their deployment. Um, two or three of my friends wanted me to do that because they'd rather say goodbye to their families at their house. They didn't want them to do the waiting around that just lingered and went on and on and on, so they had me do that with them, right? I would drive them there to the gym. And that was so hard for me, seeing them tear up, seeing these men who were tough guys, were great soldiers and warriors, tear up as they said goodbye to home. Uh, and I recognize even as I say this, that was hard for me. How hard do you think it was for them? Many of you have gone through this. Many of you have experienced what it's like to just long for home. Well, the New Testament and our book, Daniel, tells us that really all of God's people long for home. We all miss being in our true home, and that true home is with God. So that's the feeling that we all have. What do we do with that feeling? How do we do it well? How do we 
long for home in a godly way? I think Daniel's going to answer that for us. So let's read Daniel 9, starting in verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by a descent, a Mede, who was made king of the realms of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. He's, he's seeing in the prophecies of Jeremiah, oh, it's only going to be 70 years. So he must have recently got a copy or maybe he's restudying something he already had. Look at verse 3. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. I'm going to stop on that kind of depressing note there, the confession of Daniel, that he and his people have sinned before God, that, that their exile, that their not being home is a result of their sin. And so that's going to bring up a lot of other secondary questions for us, but I want to pray and ask God to help us to learn from his word today. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would teach us how to be away from home and do that by faith. Father, we pray that you would teach us that where you are, that is our true home, that being with you in heaven, that is true home, and that that is what we're ultimately longing for. Father, will you teach us how to long for home by faith, trusting you, uh, displaying your love and your righteousness? God, as we feel these weird, confusing mixes of thankfulness to your goodness for us, but also frustration and waiting and confusion, God, help us to see that you are good. Teach us by your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit would open up our minds so we would hear what you have to say in the text. Uh, we ask you for your help and your grace, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've moved through this series, we've continued to remind ourselves that the Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. And we've talked about how important this is to remember especially when we're in Old Testament literature and especially when we're in apocalyptic literature, these things that are very culturally distant. This is a far, far off from kind of our normal everyday language and routines and how we see the world. And so I'm trying to connect the dots here between he wanted to get back to Jerusalem, the place where God said, I'm going to declare my goodness and my name through the world, right? He had a longing for a very specific place, and we've all experienced that, right? If you've been on deployment, you've experienced longing to get back into that house at that address with that family, right? Or even if, like me, you've never been a soldier on deployment, you've just been away for a long time and you just want to be back in your own bed, right? We've all had that experience, a, a longing for being back where things were safe and secure. The Bible, though, carries this concept of exile and says, you know what? It starts all the way back in the Garden of Eden. This concept of exile starts all the way back there. Adam and Eve 
were kicked out of their true home, paradise with God, because of their sin. And the Bible, with the major story, just kind of jumping over this little temporary exile of Israel, says there's this deeper, longer, eternal exile that we're struggling with. We're exiled from paradise because of our sin, and we long to get back in. And the only way for us to get back home spiritually is by what Jesus Christ has done for us. He left the comforts of his home to come here, to take our place, to die for us, to take our sin upon himself, and to give us his resurrection life. And in that way, he's able to say in John 14, I'm going to prepare a place for you. That's the promise of Jesus, and that's where our hope lies. And so I wanna encourage you to look at this theme in the bigger picture. We've got kind of very concrete specifics of this time in history, Israel being exiled, wanting to get back, but it was, it was showing a bigger picture. It's showing a bigger spiritual reality, and we wanna understand that. Something that's really helpful online is the Bible Project videos. They have an entire video just on the theme of exile in the Bible. They also have a theme on every book of the Bible, so you could go look at their, um, their video on Daniel specifically. But check out the exile video. It's really helpful to just kind of trace this theme throughout all of Scripture. We're locked out of the Garden of Eden. We want to get back in. Jesus is the only way to get back in. Now, in Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, he's going to give us some really good specifics that follow that gospel story that we see fulfilled in the New Testament. So what we're going to see in Daniel chapter 9 is, number one, we should denounce our failure. Denounce our failure. Number two, what Daniel 9 teaches us is we should ask for undeserved kindness. We should ask for undeserved kindness. And then number three, what we see is that we should live like you are loved. We should live like we are loved, okay? So number one, let's look at this idea that we should denounce our failure. Now, the word sin in Hebrew is kata, and in Greek it is hamartia, and that literally means to miss, to miss the mark, right? To not live up to what you are trying to accomplish, to fail. That's why I'm using the word failure. Um, Romans 3.23 says it this way, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're made, human beings were made to be glorious like God, to reflect his image, love, justice in the world. We fall short of that. We miss that mark. So whether you are just openly hostile, wild, rebellious, doing crazy things, right? That's one kind of missing the mark. But there's another kind of missing the mark in our culture. We call it, um, you know, being a good neighbor, being respectable, trying to do all the right things. If you're that kind of person, you also miss the mark. All human beings are united. That's what Romans 1 through 3 lays out very carefully. All of us, it's another thing to remember, in the coming days... As things get more divisive in our culture, as people are more divided and want to blame each other, like, oh, this is your fault. No, this is your, you're on that team, and this is your problem. That's your. All human beings are united in this one thing. We all fall short of the design that God has made for us. That doesn't mean we can't, you know, advocate for what we think would fix the world. Yeah, advocate all you want. Just remember, we're all sinners. We're all sinners, and Jesus is ultimately the only solution. Now, there's a word that comes up in this text before I get into the details here, shame. In our culture, more and more, shame is becoming a bad word, and it's always a bad word. Biblically, it's not always a bad word. 
way I would explain it here is um, shame, you might say, is the feeling that goes along with doing something wrong. I think in, in modern kind of psychological language, usually shame is used to describe something that you have no responsibility for, right? And of course, if that's the kind of shame you have, you need to work through it, right, and put away that shame. But there is a genuine shame which is based on I've sinned. And that's a right kind of feeling of yuck when I look at my own sin, right? I should feel gross when I recognize my sin. And so that's more of the biblical way of using that word. Um, So the way I'd say is biblically, this whole concept of sin results in analysis of sin, right? That was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. But it also results in feelings of sin, which in the text are going to be called shame. Okay. So in Daniel chapter 9, verse 3, we see Daniel turning his face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. It says in verse 4, he prayed to the Lord, made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Verse 5, we have sinned. We've done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. That's the cold analysis of the facts. We've not done what God told us to do, right? We define sin as anything we think, say, or do that's displeasing to God. God says do this, and we're like, nope, I don't think so. We do something he's asked us not to do, or we don't do something that he has asked us to do, right? We've broken his commandments. That is sin. Daniel will go on to talk about shame. But I want to stop us here and just remind us of the context. What makes him start praying? Do you remember those first few verses? They gave a dateline. They are like, Darius, it was this year, this is what was happening. What was he looking at? What was Daniel studying? What was he reading that kind of propelled him into this prayer? Do you remember? Anybody remember? It was the 70 years that were prophesied by Jeremiah. So Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord is 70 years for the desolations of Jerusalem. Other places it said 70 years for Babylon, right? And so this was about depending on where you start it, right? Because it's hard to know if, do you start it like when Nebuchadnezzar comes on the throne or do you start it from like the date the temple was destroyed or when the first kids like Daniel were kidnapped from Jerusalem? It's hard to know exactly where to start it. But roughly right here, Daniel's at about year 67. So Daniel is seeing the word of God in Jeremiah, which that's a whole nother thing to blow your mind, right? He knows Jeremiah's a prophet. That's another thing liberal scholars say that, you know, Prophecies were written, and nobody really thought they were prophets. It just happened later. People called them prophets. No, Daniel knows that Jeremiah is speaking the word of the Lord, and he's reading it. Somehow he's got a copy of it. And he's like, here, the word of the Lord is coming, coming from Jeremiah. It says it's only going to be 70 years. We're almost there. What does that lead him to do? Well, if it was you and I, it would lead him to just sit back and watch Netflix and say, hey, God said he's going to do this thing in three years. Cool, right? Like, that's what we would do. Great, God, you're going to finish this nightmare in three more years. That's super. But what does Daniel do? Daniel sees that God is going to do something. We talked about this some last week. When Daniel sees the sovereignty of God, it moves him towards God in prayer. It moves him towards God in prayer. Specifically here, he's denouncing his failure and the failures of his people. We'll pick back up in verse 6. He goes on. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes and our fathers and to all the people in the land. That kind of covers everybody, right? Verse 7, to you, O Lord, belongs righteousness 
He's real clear. God, you are just. You are righteous. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. Again, this is not the modern pop psychology Brene Brown definition of shame, which is not totally evil. Some of that stuff can be helpful as you're working through your own junk. But here, it's the biblical concept of, I feel gross because I should feel gross because I did wrong, because I sinned. This is a proper kind of shame. We have shame because we've sinned. We're gross. We did the wrong thing. We haven't lived up to what you told us to do, God. That's a proper kind of shame. He goes on, verse 7, as at this day, the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. This is where sometimes I like to say, other theologians like to say, that our sin is not just like breaking an arbitrary rule, but it's cosmic treason. Right? You feel bad when you let down someone really good, don't you? God is the ultimate good in the universe. God is the only one who is perfectly righteous. So, so take those moments where you let down or hurt someone who is really sweet and magnify that times a million. It's treachery, cosmic treason. We've betrayed the one true, righteous, good, gracious, holy God of the universe. In verse eight, he says to us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. Now, there's something going on here that I don't want to spend a lot of time on, but it's leaders taking responsibility. You see that? Leaders take responsibility for the corporate brokenness of the whole tribe. So let's read that again. It says, to us, the Lord belongs shame. Our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against you. Leaders take responsibility for sin. Verse nine, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Um, there's this strange dynamic going on here where he's taking, simultaneously taking responsibility for corporate sin and he's personalizing it. And that confuses us, right? Especially as modern Western Christians. So there's two things going on here that I think we need to clarify. The Bible very clearly teaches that you and I will not be judged for our father's sins eternally. We might be judged for our father's sins in this lifetime, right? Because your dad and my dad did things that were wrong, it's gonna cause us problems in this lifetime. Or your nation does bad things and you're gonna suffer the consequences for that in your lifetime. There is real corporate struggles that result because of corporate sin. Do you see that? Now, before God, when we go to heaven, we stand before God, we don't say, uh, I have to go to hell because my father or my mother did something. No, that's not how it works eternally, right? And that gets confusing for us, right? Because as evangelicals, we're the tribe of Christians that really emphasize our eternal standing before God. We're the kinds of Christians that say, that's what really matters. What are you gonna do before God? And that's good. I, I think that's important. But sometimes that can make us kind of jump over this judgment on families and nations and cities and corporations and churches, right? Groups do bad stuff and then bad things happen. And it's not always a one-to-one -one correlation, so it's confusing, right? It's not like as soon as your leader does a bad thing, a lightning bolt comes down, right? God is very slow, and gracious, right? 
So that adds more confusion to us. So much so that in Luke 13, Jesus says this, don't think that those people that got killed by the evil King Herod, or don't think that the people who the tower fell on were worse sinners than the rest of you, right? Jesus is basically saying, when a natural disaster or a human disaster takes place, don't see that as a one-to-one correlation of those people were especially evil, which is really important for us because a lot of Christians say stupid things when judgment happens, right? They're like, oh, well, that's because the bad people in that city. No, don't, Jesus is saying don't say that. But Jesus doesn't say, because you're all innocent, right? What does Jesus say? Jesus says don't say that, why? Because we're all guilty. Do you see that? We're all guilty. This is why Daniel, the holiest person in the Bible, can confess sin before God, even though, I mean, arguably, he had nothing to do with all these bad things Israel did that got them into exile, right? In the same way you, as a sinner, can confess the sins of your family, your nation, your tribe, your church, your people, your company, and say, that was wrong. God, forgive us. It's okay to pray those general prayers of God, forgive us. Let God work out the details of, well, how's, you know, how's that fair? I don't, I don't know, but it's okay, right? We know ultimately I stand before God, and the only thing that will get me into heaven is Jesus. That's the ultimate solution. That's clear. We know that. But here we've got this example of, of corporate sorrow and grief. And so again, I've, I've just seen this over the last few years, especially as our country's all divided. And you know, some people say we should more often confess the sins, of, you know, the sins of racism or the sins of injustice or the sins of this or that. And other people are like, no, you should never corporately confess any sin. Well, actually, that's pretty common in the Bible. You just need to make sure you understand that what gets you into heaven is Jesus. What helps you to not keep making the same dumb corporate mistakes is confessing your corporate mistakes. You see that? So we denounce our failures. One of the things that I do every time I sit down with an um, engaged couple when we're talking about getting married is to say, what we want you to do is we want you to honor your parents and talk about the good things they did that you want to continue that were godly and biblical. And then we want you to respectfully say, but this is how I'm going to do things differently. Right, because Genesis 2.24 says that you know, when a new family's formed, they leave their father and mother, they cling to their wife, they become one flesh. It's a new family forming there, and you've got to determine before God, right, because we're accountable to God, God, what do you want us to do as a family? And so it's important to go through that organizationally, by family, as a nation, right? It's okay to say, yeah, our, our nation did wrong here. Or, you know what, our church did wrong. That was wrong of us. We need to move in a new direction. And so let's not miss just the common sense reality of how important and how helpful this is. Daniel's not just confessing his own sin, which he is, but he's also confessing corporately. Man, our, our people messed up. And that's good and healthy. Now, where does this go too far? It goes too far sometimes when there are like extreme elements in our culture that just demand it all the time, right? Or they encourage a like victim identity where your whole identity is being sinned against. And, you know, we can, we can take this too far, right? It can definitely be taken too far, but let's not miss the common sense goodness of confessing corporate sin. We did wrong. Our country's done wrong. Let's name it and try not to do it again. Our family did wrong. Let's name it and try not to do that again. Our churches have done wrong. Let's name it and try not to do that again. And this is part of what we see here. Now, going back to the personal 
reality, again, we see the heartbreak of Daniel. He's, he's grossed out by the sin, and that's appropriate too. And I know a lot of you are very rational, logical people. The Bible encourages us to have godly feelings, okay? So you're going to have to wrestle with that, especially if you're a Western person that's very suspicious of emotions. The Bible encourages godly emotions, like being grossed out by sin, being grossed out when your people have done something wrong, even if you're not really responsible for it, right? I can be grossed out that my family did this thing or my grandparents did this thing or my country did this thing, and that's appropriate. There's this interesting story that's gone around for years about um, G.K. Chesterton, who is a famous uh, writer. He wrote fiction, he wrote nonfiction, Christian writer, the last century. Um, and so in the time, I think it was the Times of London, but a newspaper kind of posed this question to a lot of intellectual thinkers and writers of the day, and the question was basically, what is wrong with the world? That was the question. And so a lot of these intelligent writers responded to that and sent in their letters to the editor to this major newspaper. And here was G.K. Chesterton's response. What is wrong with the world? This great writer, very wordy. He could go on and on and on. This is, this is what he said. Dear sirs, I am. That's it. That was his letter. What's wrong with the world? He said, I am. That, that's the Christian response. So, again, we might advocate against, like we, we make some judgments. We say, that's wrong, like in voting, right? That's wrong. I don't want that, so I'm going to vote for this other thing. That, that's perfectly right and good to make some judgments in history and time. But fundamentally, spiritually, Christians are the ones that are like, you know what? What's really broken in the world is human sin, and it's in me. It's in me too. So we're very self-focused on confessing our sin. I grabbed a picture here of sackcloth and ashes. Verse 3 said that he was repenting in sackcloth and ashes. Um, that's not really done in our culture anymore. This was actually in the Ivory Coast. So some kind of ritual that Christians were doing there, um, corporate national repentance, where they were putting ashes on their face and wearing sackcloth like burlap bags. Um, this was a culturally normal part in the ancient Middle East of expressing grief. One of my questions for you is, what would be a culturally normal way for you to express grief? Uh, we don't typically put on sackcloth and ashes. What does it look like for us? And I thought, I was really wrestling with this. I'm not sure we even have a culturally normal way to express grief specifically and confess sin, right? So I'm left with, you know, the important thing is that we actually denounce our failure, confess our sin. That's really the important thing. But I just also want to leave that out there and say, Lord, will you show us, are there, are there other steps we should take to express I'm broken, I've sinned, I've done wrong? Because isn't that kind of weird that what was normal in one culture, we don't, we don't have anything like that in our culture? That might point to something about our culture. Like maybe we have a culture that doesn't know how to confess sin. That's, that's a good question to ask. But we also don't want to stay there. And that's what the second point, ask for undeserved kindness, is about. But just a couple specifics here about how are we going to do this. So back up. I'm not really ready to go to the next point yet. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> not going to make any comments about time. Okay. So two, two specifics. Denounce my failure. I don't mean you denounce my failure. All of us as individuals, denounce our failure, right? Make it personal before God. Confess your own sin. And then denounce corporate failure, right? Whether it's your, your country, 
your unit, your branch, uh, your family, your nation, your tribe, this group that you tend to belong to. You'll hear me sometimes say, you know, our kinds of Christians have this problem of doing blah, blah, blah. That's, that's healthy to do. Say, you know what? We have this blind spot. We often fall into this ditch. We often have done this wrong thing. Our family had this bad habit of saying, this is always this way or this is never this way, right? You need to name those sins. Again, not falling into a victim mentality and saying, corporate sin, and oh, I've been so beat up and I could have never succeeded because they were so bad. No, it's just naming it. You got to name it. But start personal. Start personal. I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, right? 1 John 1, 8, and 9. This is the key verse on this. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, but the truth, and the truth is not in us. 1 John 1, 9, though, if we confess our sins, confess is literally say the same thing as, if we agree with God that we have sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But then we've also got to confess the sins of our tribe, our nation, our people. Again, there's no like biblical, you've got to do it this often, every week in your church service or every morning, right? It's just, we've got to be real. We've got to declare that reality. Sometimes it just happens naturally in life. In my own life, as I studied um, the issues of race in our country, I started to realize, oh, my tribe, white evangelicalism, had done some bad things. The kinds of churches I've belonged to 50 years ago had done some bad things. And what did that do? That made me feel gross. Biblical word is shame, right? It's like, oh, this makes me angry. So I was like, that was wrong. We shouldn't do that, right? Just naming that. You might do that in conversation with friends. You might write it in a journal. You might write an essay about it. You might just pray before God as Daniel does here. But name the sins of your people. It might be something that happened in your family. A lot of us have gone through counseling and we're like, you know what? My family always said this thing and it wasn't true. It just doesn't line up with what the Bible teaches. So I'm gonna denounce that failure to stand by the truth in my family. It doesn't mean I hate my family. It doesn't mean everything they did was evil. I can still appreciate the good. I'm just gonna denounce and name that was wrong. By God's grace, we'll move in a new direction. It's just important for our health to name when our family, when our country, when our company, when, you know, anything we're a part of, say, you know what, that was wrong. We need to move in a new direction. Turn and move on. First John 2, 1, right after those other verses I already shared in First John 1, 8, and 9. First John 2, 1 says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, right? Don't sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. That is our hope. That is our hope. We don't want to get bogged down in, in victimology. We don't want to get bogged down in like, you know, whipping ourselves and thinking that God's impressed with us by how much we feel shame. We just need to name it and we need to move on. And now we're going to the second point. Okay. We'll zoom through this much more quickly. Ask for undeserved kindness. The second point is that we should ask for undeserved kindness. We should ask for God to be nice to us and good to us in a way that we do not deserve. And Daniel's gonna to really pull a lot of Old Testament quotes that tie in with our New Testament concept of what we call grace. Grace, sometimes we say grace can be remembered by the letters grace, God's riches at Christ's expense, right? So that's I bring sin and shame to the table. Jesus brings eternal life to the table. That's grace. He gives me 
what I don't deserve. Sometimes historically this is called unmerited favor. That means I didn't add up enough uh, stars on my star chart to, to earn God's love, but God just gave it to me because he loves me, right? It's undeserved, it's unmerited. Verse 11, he says, all Israel has transgressed your law. Again, that's violated the law. Turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. So he's calling out specific you know, curses, oaths that they made. Deuteronomy 28, we said we'd follow you. If we don't follow you, this is gonna happen. Now it's happened. Leviticus 26, clear curses and commitments and Promises of forgiveness, if they would just repent, if they would just ask for forgiveness, he'd forgive them. But if you don't ask for forgiveness, then I'm gonna make you pay for your sins. There will be an exile, I will scatter you, the temple will be destroyed. And so we see God righteously keeping his commitments here. And this is part of what he's gonna go on to say. Um, verse 12, he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity, a terrible thing. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. Verse 13, as it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. So he's saying this calamity is what we deserved and we didn't ask you to give us what we did not deserve. We didn't ask for undeserved kindness, and you, God, are being righteous in giving us what we deserve. And God's like, if you just ask for grace, for undeserved kindness, I would give it to you. I'd forgive your sins. Verse 14, therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. Verse 15 goes on, and now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. So again, just to clarify, he's clarifying, this is what we deserve. We deserve the calamity, we deserve the judgment, we deserve the punishment. That kind of goes with the um, confession of sin. We deserve punishment because God is righteous and we're not righteous. We've done bad things. We deserve to be separated from God. Romans 1 is really interesting. Romans 1 talks about it this way. It says that the wrath of God is displayed and is poured out on mankind, and this is what it looks like. This is kind of how the wrath of God is felt by humanity. He gives us over to our desires. Isn't that terrifying? Because then we think in like mythological terms, do a bad thing, lightning bolt, right? Because if you had good parents, that's kind of how it worked when you were little, right? That's good parenting. If, if you do a bad thing, then they punish you right then. But as you grow older, your, your parents are like, okay, you're gonna have to learn to do it on your own. I'm not gonna say something every time you do something wrong. And the older you get, the more you're kind of independent. And God is allowing us to do our own thing. He's saying, okay, well, really my wrath being poured out on you is I'm letting you try life without me. I'm letting you have this, these false gods. I'm letting you just... Do what feels naturally to you. This is one of the things our culture is so confused about. Um, and we have to be careful with our terms when we're talking to our pagan neighbors because our pagan neighbors just think, of course, the best good and satisfaction in life is to do what feels right to me. The Bible says, no, that often will kill you, right? 
And again, you know this if you have little kids, but like last night was Halloween. If you eat 50 pounds of candy, it's not going to go well with you, right? But that feels like the right thing to do. How many of you, your stomach hurts still right now because it felt in the moment like the right thing to do? Probably more adults than normal this morning because it's been such a weird year and nobody came to your house. So you just had to eat all the candy yourself, right? <laughs> Probably saw I scattered some all over the church because we had leftovers. Um, sometimes what feels good is not good for us. Okay, verse 16. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from the city of Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our father, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O oh, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. It's God's kindness. It's God's grace, the sweetness that we didn't earn. For your mercy, for your own sake, O oh Lord, make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. It means it's all torn up and broken down. Verse 18, oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. That's the key verse there. A lot of stuff here. Just uh, memorize verse 18. God, we don't ask you because of our righteousness, but because of your mercy. Right? Your righteousness. I'm not. I'm asking you not because I'm righteous. I'm asking you because you're merciful, because you're gracious, because you give what I don't deserve. Verse 19, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. So just some cross-references here. He's weaving together the language from Deuteronomy 28, where they said, you know, this is what's going to happen. If you disobey, this is going to happen, right? Uh, Leviticus 26, I already mentioned those. And then also there's a lot of language from 1 Kings 8 when Solomon is dedicating the temple. Solomon is saying things like, okay, we're dedicating this temple and this is going to be a special place, right? It's going to be a broadcasting center for both the righteousness of God, but also the grace, the undeserved kindness of God, the unmerited favor of God. And Solomon is praying in such a way where he says, oh Lord, if, if we sin, then make this a place where we can pray and say, God, forgive us, and you will turn and forgive us, right? And so these are biblical keys, and I want to encourage you that as you are making your own pleas for God's undeserved kindness, to understand that this is how God has made his universe. And there are biblical keys, there are key texts that say this over and over again in the Old Testament. It's a lot clearer and easier for us to see in the New Testament, Right? Sometimes we get caught up in the emphasis on judgment and holiness in the Old Testament. But this undeserved kindness, this forgiveness, this righteousness that is a sacrifice that's given to us, it's there in the Old Testament as well. The Old Testament and the New Testament go together. They have the same themes, right? There might be a greater emphasis on judgment in the Old Testament, but forgiveness, undeserved kindness is still there. And so you see him quoting all these biblical texts, these Old Testament keys of grace. I grabbed a picture of, this is a famous sculpture of Peter holding a key. Um, and so some traditions take this too far and make it like Peter's the only one with the keys to the kingdom, right? Because there are texts where Jesus talks about how he's giving this authority to Peter. But when you read those texts in context, what you see is that Peter's confession of Jesus being the Christ, that's really the key to heaven. 
Jesus is the key. Other places, this is other ways that this is described in the New Testament. He's the road, right? He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. He says he's the ladder to heaven that Jacob had a vision of. Angels come up and down. He's the doorway, right? He's the the way between the stairway to heaven. Jesus is the way you get into heaven. Jesus is the key to undeserved kindness. He's the way that we get there. So we ask for undeserved kindness just like Daniel did, right? Because again, ultimately, when you look at those key texts, Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26, you realize these guys were not just thrown into exile because they did bad. They were thrown into exile because they did bad and never repented of it, never asked God to forgive them, never asked for grace. Ask God for undeserved kindness. And then as you ask that, New Testament, we're told, give that out as well. We not only ask for undeserved kindness, we show undeserved kindness. Again, divisive time in our culture. All of us are gonna be mad this week no matter what happens, right? (laughs) Like no matter what happens, we're gonna be mad. That's just the place we're at in our culture. We're just gonna be frustrated. Even if your person wins, you're gonna be frustrated because there was no good person to vote for this year, right? Like no matter which way things go, we're just like, man, things are so messed up and we wanna, we wanna be angry and we wanna be judgmental about it. But here we see the example of someone who again, just the framing of this is amazing. He was the holiest guy that we've seen in the Bible before Jesus, right? And he's confessing sin and he's asking for God's grace. He's being gracious, he's asking for grace. What would it look like for us to be gracious? One of the number one ways to describe this in the New Testament is, Forgiving others as Christ has forgiven you. It's a very direct relational. That person made me mad. They hurt me. I'm frustrated with them. Or that team, right? Or that political party or that leader. And we forgive as Jesus has forgiven us. But then there's this other really cool New Testament word, hospitality, stranger love. What would it mean for you to show tangible kindness? Have them over for a meal, maybe outside, socially distanced, you know creatively showing kindness, giving a gift, doing something nice, serving someone, following the example of Jesus Christ who stooped and washed the disciples' feet, even Judas. What does it look like for us to show that kind of hospitality and grace to others because we've asked for that grace ourselves? Okay, last point is live like you are loved. Live like you are loved. And this is one of the most interesting prophecies in all of Daniel because it's the most Jesus-centered prophecy. Um, One, we wanna deal with the big question that Daniel was wrestling with and we wrestle with as we wait, right? Because we're spiritual exiles. Daniel was a physical exile and a spiritual exile. We're at least spiritual exiles, and so the question we're asking is, am I loved? Is Jesus coming back? Is God gonna fix the world? That's a reasonable question to ask, and that's the kind of question that Daniel was asking as he was seeking the Lord in prayer. 9 verse 20, Daniel says, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, verse 21, just in case you missed it, he's going to say that word again, while... While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, 
came to me in swift flight. So, you know, this is part of where we get the picture of angels with wings. We don't know how this all works out. A lot of times angels and visions are like freaky, scary monsters. This angel apparently looked like a man, but he could still fly, right? So we don't fully understand how the messengers of God operate, but an angel is literally a messenger of God, and that's who Gabriel is. So he's this guy that looks like a man, but he flies to him, and he's a messenger of God. He came at the time of the evening sacrifice, the evening sacrifice in the temple. In this just a little funny aside, Daniel is still keeping time by the temple, even though it's destroyed. It's gone. But he's still thinking in terms of the sacrifices, the place where God's holiness is declared and God's forgiveness is declared. That's what the temple does. They were just always visualizing what we now call the gospel. God is righteous and we deserve judgment, but a sacrifice has been made. That's just being pumped out all the time in the temple. Now it's destroyed and he's still keeping time. It was about the time when the evening sacrifice would be offered. Verse 22, he made me understand, speaking with me and saying, oh Daniel, I've now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. I've come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Isn't that beautiful? For you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. So the first thing that we see is that Gabriel comes quickly. Um, Daniel's confessing his sin, confessing his people's sin, asking for God's forgiveness, asking for undeserved kindness. And we get these words, while he was speaking and praying, while he was speaking and praying, swift flight, Gabriel came to him. At the beginning of your pleas, Gabriel says. So all of this is language saying, it was quick. And so I think this should encourage us to see Daniel as an example of faith and say, when I pray to God, God answers quickly. Now the next chapter, we'll see there's a delay, right? And so it doesn't always come as quickly as we want it to. And so Daniel 9 and 10 kind of show that tension of, man, God always answers immediately, but we don't always hear it or receive it or see the result. But God is always there listening to our prayers. But the other thing we see is he says in verse 23, for you are greatly loved. And that is beautiful. He got his answer. Daniel is greatly loved. The question is, are we greatly loved, right? <laughs> well, yeah, it's great. Daniel, he's a prophet. He was a special Bible guy, so yeah, he was greatly loved, but am I greatly loved? And that's the question we're still left with and we're answering. Before I answer that, because I think the text is going to answer that, I want to go to the more confusing part of this first and then come back to the better part. Better? That's a bad word. Uh, to the simpler part, right? So let's do the confusing first and then look at the simple part, okay? So the more confusing part of the answer is in verse 26. After the 62 weeks or 62 sevens, an anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. This is a prophecy that Gabriel is giving him. So anointed one will be cut off and have nothing. That sounds kind of familiar, right? The word Christ in Messiah is anointed one, right? So a Messiah, a Christ, shall be cut off. That sounds familiar. That kind of sounds like the cross, right? And it goes on. It says, and the people of the prince who is to come, though, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and at the end there shall be war, and desolations are decreed. He shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So you can see I'm, I'm basically trying to do the bad news first and then go to the good news, right? 
destruction, mayhem, temples can be torn down. Um, and this is what's sometimes referred to as the 70th week. So this prophecy is going to talk about weeks, which in Hebrew are sevens. And so it's really the 70th seven, which is uh, total would be 490 years. But the problem is there's a gap. It's not really just exactly 490 years. And so this is the confusing part of the prophecy and the worst part of the prophecy. So either Gabriel's saying, hey, you know 70 AD that we've seen where the temple is destroyed? That's gonna happen. That'll be the 70th week. This desolator, Titus, gonna destroy everything. It's gonna be horrible, right? A lot of us, though, myself included, see that as kind of a prefiguring, an example of what is to come. So then when Jesus talked about this kind of language where Jesus warned that this kind of thing was gonna come, but then he said there's still farther off things to come as well, that there are these like double fulfillments where there's this thing that kind of fulfilled this, a desolator of the temple, but there's really gonna be still an ultimate desolation to come. So again, scary word we use sometimes, antichrist, this kind of ultimate evil figure, but even the most ultimate evil figure will be destroyed by the breath of Jesus' coming. So we know that, that God is still sovereign. No matter who is in charge, no matter what kingdoms rise up and fall down, no matter what political parties come up and come down, no matter which leaders come up and come down, God is our ultimate king and he is a good king. And so the people of God are comforted by this reality. Um, and just the interpretive difficulty of this where different Christians disagree. Um, again, part of what's weird about this is everybody has a gap. There are 69, <coughs> excuse me, 69 clumps of seven years, which comes out to 483 years. I did the math ahead of time so I could you know, tell you this the right way. 483 years, but then there's a gap, and then there's a seven years. So you've probably heard the seven years, the tribulation, stuff like that. So some people believe there's like this gap of 40 years to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Other people think this is talking about a two, 3,000 year gap, and it's still something future to come. Either way, there's a gap. So either way, there's kind of something fuzzy here that we don't understand. So I just wanna leave that to you. There's bad stuff to come, but God is ultimately in charge. Now let's go back to the really, really, really good news, okay? Look at verse 24. 70 weeks, 70 sevens, 490 years, are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Verse 25, know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks, seven sevens. So that's what, 49 years, right? Then, for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. So this coincides with the rebuilding of the temple. This is talked about in Nehemiah and Ezra. We've got the rebuilding of the temple, but it's going to be a difficult time. There was kind of constant war and difficulty as the temple was rebuilt. Verse 26, and after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. So seven sevens, and then 62 sevens. That adds up exactly from this time to the coming of Christ. This is incredible prophecy. And again, you know, all scholars disagree and everybody's got their calculators. You know, do you start it at this day? You know, did you start it um, when the first people went out to rebuild the temple or the first king intimated it? Or do you, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to know exactly where to start it. 
but most of the clocks and calculations that have been done, it either lines up exactly with the birth of Jesus or, the one I like better, it lines up exactly with the death of Jesus. Which is really, really amazing prophecy. Which again is why skeptics look at the book of Daniel and say, oh, it couldn't have been written that far back because it predicts stuff that didn't happen. Here's the funny thing. They say it couldn't have been written that early because it predicts all the stuff that like Antiochus Epiphanes did. We've seen this other, you know, this general from 175 BC. So they said it must have been written right after he came. But this coming of Jesus still hasn't happened yet, right? So they still, they still can't deny the prediction of the coming of Jesus. This is beautiful material that says we are loved. So to take us back to that big question, Gabriel says, Daniel, I'm bringing you an answer. You are loved. And you're praying for this 70 years to be up. And in a way, it will be because they started going back and rebuilding Jerusalem. But he said, there's a real solution, a bigger solution that's coming. And that's 70 times seven. All kinds of symbolism, right? We had years of jubilee. We had Sabbath rests for the land. We have all kinds of, this is like, hyperlinked to the entire Old Testament, and I can't go into all the details because I'm already going too long. But there's this decree, and it will result in the end of sin to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness. We have promises that finally the end of exile will come. And that's the already not yet that we live in now. The real end to our exile has been accomplished when Jesus was exiled from heaven for us and he gave his life for us. He took our sin upon himself on the cross and he gave us his resurrection life. So Gabriel said, Daniel, you are loved. He told him explicitly. And then he said, and here's this prediction. And that prediction is for all who would believe on Jesus, we know that we are loved as well. And so then we can live as if we are loved. So then you zoom forward to Matthew 24 and 25, very similar predictions, similarly confusing, but also predictions about the end of the world. And Jesus is like, be ready for this, but you don't know the day or time. So there's like specificity, like if this abomination of desolation happens at the temple, run, right? It's a very specific warning. Get out of there. If Titus comes in 70 AD, run, right? But then there's other stuff that seems like it's still coming in the future that hasn't happened to us yet. Jesus says, no one knows the day or time. And he says, here's the thing, just live ready. Live ready. You don't have to spend all your time arguing about it. Is it fun to read these prophecies and compare the different charts and say, well, this is what all millennialism says and this is what premillennialism, you know, these are the different end times charts. Yeah, it's, it's fun to read that and try to get a more clear grasp on the details. But Jesus says, live like you are loved. It's gonna feel like a long time. And he says, so don't be the servant that abuses the other servants. Live as if you are loved and you're waiting for my return. Be a servant that serves the other servants well. That's the first parable that Jesus gives about the end times. He's like, here are all these crazy predictions. Live like you are loved. He gives another parable about wedding versions, and that's confusing to us because they do weddings differently, but the main idea is be ready for the party. Be, be waiting for the groom to come back. That's the whole purpose of that parable. Be excited about the return of Jesus. And he gives a third parable about being ready and it's investing our talents. He says, don't 
Just bury your talent in the backyard. Spend what God has given you for his glory because you believe he's gracious. That's what it looks like for us to live like we are loved. Do you find yourself hoarding everything that you have because you don't think God's really gonna take care of you and you've gotta take care of yourself? If that's the case, you're not living like you're loved. Look back to the prediction of Daniel chapter nine and the fulfillments of the New Testament. It says you are loved because Jesus gave himself for you. So live like it, spend yourself. When society is falling apart, sure, common sense, lock your door, right? But live like you are loved, right? I'm not saying just go out there and kill yourselves, but Romans 12:1 says, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Give yourself up for your neighbors, for your enemies, in the name of Christ. Live like you are loved. This is what it looks like for us to long for home, to recognize we're not really home yet. This is not our true home. We're awaiting a savior from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you love us and you proved that by prophesying that an end to sin would come through your anointed one, but then fulfilling it, Father, at the perfect time. Thank you for fulfilling all your promises. Thank you for ending the exile and God, as we long for all these details to be tied up, help us to continue to long for home, to long for you, to long for being with you face to face. Help us to live well, to represent you well in a crazy chaotic society. We just thank you that we've seen these heavenly visions that you indeed are on the throne and that our lives are secure no matter how insecure we feel. Help us to long for you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.